Hello there. Welcome to Nesson Bruins Podcast. I'm Nesson.com's Mike Cole. Joined as always, and for one last time, uh, regarding the 2021 season proper by Logan Mullen and Lauren Campbell, also of Nesson.com fame. Guys, how's it going? Not too bad. What it do? We uh, we took a little bit of a, a, I guess, a baby, really just a week off, what amounts to a week off to kind of get caught up on our other work that we have to do uh, in addition to hosting this prodigious podcast. Um, but it is very obvious what we're here to discuss. We're here to discuss the, the end of the Bruins 2021 season, uh, kind of do a, a quick autopsy, see what went wrong, and then look, a, uh, look ahead to uh, what should be a, a wild summer, honestly. And uh, we'll get into that a little bit more uh, on this podcast and, and certainly down the line as the expansion draft comes up, the entry draft comes up, free agency uh, and then before you know it, we'll be back uh, back next year. So um, let's get into it. So Bruins lose to the Islanders, six games. Um, Pace it really in games five and six. Uh, not a great performance or not a great result uh, for the Bruins. Um, feels like they, you know, kind of just ran out of gas. I guess we'll just, as we are want to do around here, we'll go around the room. Logan, uh, what are your big takeaways? What went wrong? What could have been changed, if anything? Why are the Bruins in this spot and not playing hockey anymore? I think the Bruins are in this spot because they didn't have enough depth. Uh, there's a certain level of injuries that are naturally going to happen during the postseason. I'd say the Bruins probably got a little bit more unlucky than most, but they did run out of gas and they didn't have the depth to replace it. And I think some of the guys that they really needed to step up didn't end up doing it an easy example I think is Mike Riley like when Mike Riley all of a sudden has to become a 20 22 minute a night guy and he's just not giving you enough on either end then that's going to be problematic when your third pairing has Jared Tenorti and Connor Clifton if you're Riley your partner is uh, Jeremy Wozon so I think some of it was a matter of they just got unlucky in terms of who got injured but at a certain point, if your team is built to have enough depth, then you should be able to circumvent those issues to a reasonable degree. I mean, the, the Islanders didn't have Oliver Wallstrom the entire series. They didn't have Michael Dal Cole. Um, you know, the Ilya Sorokin was not as good as they thought he was going to be. So it ended up being Varlamov, who was fantastic. Um, but I just think in a lot of the areas where the Bruins came up short, depth being one of them, uh, the Islanders didn't. And it's probably that simple. Before kicking to Lauren, I, I, I'm interested to hear your take on one thing that you mentioned there that really, I mean, the, the general thought is they didn't have enough depth. And I agree with that. Your insinuation is that they did a poor job of building that depth. Is that a fair read of what you're saying? And I would maybe push back on that, not to sound like a Homer bozo, but like kind yeah. of a kind of an impressive run of defenseman injuries there for it, it was and, and that was the thing is it, the defense is so like i have no time for the argument that the result is different if they resign Chara. like I, you're probably running into a very similar issue sure. perhaps to just a smaller scale i think that the bigger problem if you want to talk about roster construction is they had guys playing in roles that they weren't ready for and so Jeremy Lozon was fine as a third pairing guy, probably shouldn't have been playing second pairing. And they were left at a point where they didn't have anyone left that they could trust. I, yeah. I guess the big picture takeaway there is that they, 
this was always a possibility and maybe someone like myself didn't account for this enough in talking about it earlier in the year or even before the season is like, if you do run into a bunch of injuries, now you do have to accelerate everybody at a rate you're probably not very comfortable with. And that that's exactly what happened. You know what I mean? They, yeah. Well, and that's why I get so exhausted with people who are like John Moore sucks and like the John Moore loss didn't mean anything. John Moore can play 22 minutes a night and he's, he might not be a Norris trophy caliber. You know, he's not Chris Pronger, but he's also probably better than what you were getting yeah. from what four of your defensemen uh, during the back half of that Islanders series. And so some of it was just like unlucky. I still think if Zaboro was healthy, they should have tried Zaboro. And with the way things are going with Lozon, he was so snake bit. I, I got to a point where I thought, why not even try back to 90? Uh, but they just, you know, I, I think it is actually less about roster construction than it is just crap luck. But there is a certain point of it where, well, you wanted to play the kids and it got to the point where you didn't feel comfortable enough playing Zaboro or Bakanainen over Tenorti or Lozon. Like it just, it, that to me is where the roster construction issue comes into play. Coincidentally, they didn't feel comfortable playing the rookie goalie over the <laughs> goalie with a torn hip labrum, but we'll get into that a little bit more down the road here. Lauren, what about you? What's your uh, big takeaway? What's your, uh, what's your synopsis? Yeah, the, the depth as well. I mean, we said all season that, that the depth looked good on paper, that the Bruins had a lot of depth on the blue line. And we also said that, you know, they were one injury away from it being tested. Unfortunately, they faced two injuries in Brandon Carlo and Kevin Miller. And it just kind of fell apart from there. Like Logan said, they're, they weren't comfortable playing the young kids, even though they went into the season pretty much with who they had at the beginning of the year. And they didn't, they didn't get their playing time. Obviously, when, with a healthy roster, it was a good problem to have until it was a problem. And now, you know, without Brandon Carlo, without Kevin Miller, th- those are two big bodies that are really hard to replace regardless of who's on your depth. But you went with the youth movement for a reason, and then you just kind of don't let them play in the playoffs. And I get it. It's, you know, game six elimination game. Do you want to throw out back a nine in there and Zaboral? I mean, that's why they're there, right? You have them as depth pieces and you're not playing them. And it just kind of goes to show that they didn't really have a lot of trust in these guys, even though this is the way they wanted to go. So, I mean, obviously there's nothing you can do with an injury to Brandon Carlo and Kevin Miller. You just need to have that next man up mentality. And it just didn't really seem like it was there. Yeah, I there's not a whole lot I can add on that. I think you guys are, are on point with that. I would just point out that once again, the the muck and the mire of the, the bottom six forwards kind of, you know, was an issue again. And this is something that they've been, they've really been chasing, you know, they've, they found it at times. Like I, I look at the, the Marcus Johansson thing a few years back as, as a, you know, example of hitting on it and hitting on a guy who could move down the lineup a little bit more um, who could play a third line position if need be. But like, I don't know. I, I felt better about that, especially the third line. I felt better about the third line going into the playoffs um, and just it kind of the well ran dry there, or maybe <laughs> to use another water cliche, water kind of found, found its level or, yeah. you know, it's, it's easy to beat the hell out of the Sabres right in March 
when you're playing a second night of a back-to-back, it's easier for Nick Richie or Charlie Coyle to, to impose their will. When you're going up against a better teams, be more motivated teams and just worse matchups, then it becomes a little bit you know, more difficult to find that from your third line. It's not impossible though, because I look at what the Islanders have done and like, you know, we kind of talked about this in our preview and shame on us, or at least shame on me in terms of saying like, you know, the Islanders are a lesser version of the Bruins. I might need to rethink that take. Cause I, you know, the Islanders do what the Bruins think, or we thought the Bruins could do, but like, it's something that the Bruins haven't had in a few years. And at least in terms of like, being able to roll those four lines, knowing that you can kind of turn a game with your fourth, third or fourth line. I don't, I can't remember that happening really at any point during that series, especially after the first two games. I, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm missing something there, but like, you know, the, the Islanders certainly got a lot more momentum out of that third and fourth line than the Bruins did. It is just a professional effort over there. And it just, Barry Trotz did a very good job of exposing the Bruins deficiencies in that series. Yeah, I thought that third line on paper for the Islanders was always better uh, than the Bruins, especially with the way Coyle had been going this season. But the fourth line had been a very good energy point yeah. for the Bruins. And the, and maybe their ceiling was a little bit higher than the Islanders, but their floor was way lower. Like that that Clutterbuck, Martin-Sasikas yeah. line seems like it never has a bad game. Like there might be like there were some objectively bad showings from the Corrali Lazar Wagner group. To this day, it baffles me why Cassidy waited so long to make any sort of changes there because it clearly was not working. But even on a quieter day for the Islanders fourth line, it was never bad, but it was bad at times for the Bruins. It feels like a uh, like a lack of identity, maybe. I don't it's, it's hard to explain. Cause like, I don't know, you know, the Bruins want to go with, you know, this, you know, the high end talent or the, you know, it just feels like they've put more of a, uh, an emphasis on skill and talent, but then, you know, you're rolling out that third line of, you know, Charlie Coyle, Nick Ritchie and a revolving door on the wing. It's like awful. That's yeah. not, you know, that's not necessarily the most talented group. Neither is that fourth line. So it's like, so you're kind of stuck in between, right? You don't necessarily do what that, you know, you don't have the, I, I, the floor, the fourth line floor, I think is like a perfect way to put it. And like, you know, especially once you get into the playoffs, like you just need them to kind of stem the tide and, and there I go again, um, be able to kind of just change the momentum of a game or at least not, you know, get you back on your heels. And that just didn't happen enough for the Bruins in addition to the depth issues that you guys mentioned. Well, and the thing that was most telling to me was if you look in 2019, you know, and, and I'm not just purely chalking this up as the Joaquin Nordstrom, Nolachari effect, but Cassidy would play that fourth line against top lines. And it seemed to me like the fourth line got a, this year got a crap load of defensive zone starts. I think it was somewhere between like 75 or 80% of their starts were in the defensive zone. Like that is always going to hem you in. But at the same time, it feels like their matchups, and this is, I'm not looking at the numbers. It's just anecdotal, I guess. But like, it, it seems like he didn't have the same level of trust of we're going to play them against any line and it doesn't matter because I'm comfortable with it. It seems like, well, this unit isn't really going. We have to play them against a third line for the Islanders that is significantly better or a fourth line that's not that great. 
you look like you just found numbers that say I'm wrong. Uh, no, I did. I the support it. I just looked up one of them. Like I didn't look up the, the line, but Wagner started 78% of his shifts in the defensive zone. Sure. So. And that's why, like, I have a little bit more patience for them, like people just bagging on Corrales and Wagner. But it's like at a certain point, you're probably going to give up goals when you're starting the defensive zone all the time. Yeah, it's just it's an interesting point. I hadn't thought of that. So it's just something to consider as well. Let's get into the goaltending thing. That was a big storyline as well. Um, all right. Point blank. Would you guys do anything differently in terms of goaltending with it with very much need to, to acknowledge just the benefit of hindsight? <laughs> Uh, Lauren, would you do anything differently? Um, no, I think that at the end of the day, Cassidy made the right call because I mean, Swayman's only had 10 regular season games. He's, he doesn't have playoff experience minus those 20 minutes. Um, you know, you just, you go with your starting goalie, you go with your number one goalie. If he tells you he's fine enough to play, I'm going to trust my player. I'm assuming Cassidy knew that his labrum was torn. I don't know. I don't know the communication there and how far that goes, but if I'm being told that my player, my starting goalie is well enough to play, I'm putting my trust into that person until I have no reason not to. I mean, we knew Rask was laboring through. We knew that he was not 100% throughout the playoffs, throughout even halfway through the regular season. But he's still, for a guy having a torn labrum, he still looked pretty good through some of these games. Um, he still moved pretty well. It just came down to, obviously, he couldn't make enough saves. But I think at the end of the day, I wouldn't do anything different. I don't think 22 year old Jeremy Swayman was going to win you game six. Logan. Yeah. I mean, I thought their issues went far beyond goaltending. So it, I guess it's easy to second guess it, but kind of like Lauren said, if Rask is healthy, you have to play him. And I think that's what most of us might've said before the game, when there were all these concerns about it, is that if you want to, I don't think, Bruce Cassidy gives a rat's ass about the public perception about his decisions. However, I think if Rask, if you play Swayman in game six and then Rask comes out and says, oh, yeah, I was healthy, they just went with Swayman instead, and you still lost, that is an awful look. You're probably torpedoing Jeremy Swayman's confidence because you – more likely than not got left out to dry the vast majority of game six still, because that doesn't have a lot to do with who is or is not in goal. And so there's just, there's really not a whole lot of upside. I don't think to playing Swain in that situation. So I, I wouldn't change that. Tugaras got you there. Uh, you've got to kind of live or die with him. I keep going back and forth on this. Cause like, if he has a torn labrum, probably shouldn't be playing like that's a serious injury and a pivotal part of the body for a goaltender in the NHL. But like you guys both alluded to it, or at least Lauren did. He played out of his mind for like three or four weeks leading up to this all kind of coming to a head. Um, it, not to mention how well he played during the regular season when he felt good enough to go. I would kind of push back on the idea of saying like, if he says he's good, then you have to play him. Like, if that's the case, then why do you employ doctors? Um, but at the same time, he has earned that right. Like, he is a Vesna winning goalie. He is arguably your best player, most important player. Um, and I do sympathize with the idea that if you run Swayman out there and he gets 
you know, sunburned on the back of his neck because the goal light's going off so much, you A, look like a fool, and B, you might screw the kid up. So that's a tough spot too. I mean, geez, even look at like Malcolm Subban and how long it took him to finally find his footing in the NHL after a horrible start. Like those types of things can linger. So I get it. I, I don't remember if it was Sweeney or Neely, one of them in their their post-year press conferences this week said the only second guess maybe that they would have is game five. And I agree with that. Like, but that's also completely, I'm admittedly saying that with the benefit of hindsight, but like if there, there clearly was something off and I don't know if we'll ever get that entire story about what happened with game five, but even the way Cassidy explained it after the game and even the way the management explained it after the season, it just doesn't feel like it was there for him. And that that's a swing game. So I can see both sides of it there too. It's like, do you want to start the rookie with 10 games of experience and a huge game five, or do you want to send out the, you know, the, the guy with the torn hip who may or may not be ready to go. So I don't think there was a great answer. I just, I would have been a little bit more open to playing Swayman because it's just such a, it's such a delicate position physically too, that, you know, they got, I don't know. Like, I don't know if I'm not a goaltending expert. Maybe we should ask Razor at some point, if he saw something where like, Tuka was not good going side to side and it cost them. But like, that's the, if you give up a goal in that situation in a huge game, that could cost you your season. And that's just something I don't know if I would have played with, but I don't have the, the information that they do. So it's tough. Well, well, one thing I would, I don't know, float to the crowd here is if the concern about playing Swayman has anything to do with the fact that he only played 10 games, then does your mindset change if Halak is available? Because for me, it doesn't. Well, For so me, it still comes down to Rask saying he was healthy enough to play. If Swayman, even in the 10 game sample size, was if goalie Bob is saying that Swayman is better suited to be playing than Holak at a given point in time, you have to trust that. So for me, the, it, this all rides on Tuka Rask saying, I'm good or I'm not good. And the medical staff saying, yeah, he can get through this or no, he can't get through this. Maybe the second guess in hindsight too, as, you, as you're kind of talking about it there is to go with like, maybe they should have gone with Halak over Swayman. Not and I, I can't objectively sit here and say that, you know, Halak is better or worse than Swayman. I think Swayman clearly earned the right, but like, it, you know, if you weren't going to go to him at any point because he hasn't played in forever and he's only got 10 games of NHL experience and what are you, you know, then you're just not going to have a second goalie. Is that, you know well, what I mean? And- Halak didn't lose his job from a performance-based standpoint. He lost it because he got COVID and was out for a month and Swayman played out. Well, he lost it because of Swayman's performance-based. Right. (laughs) Right. But it's still saying, like, it's not like Halak had been totally rendered useless. It was because Swayman played so well. Yeah. I I think we think about it a little bit longer if Halak is their backup and he was taking backup reps through the entire postseason. Yeah, it's just an interesting thing that I didn't really thought about, especially with the Swayman versus Halak thing, which is just a completely dumb conversation to have. Like, we're probably wasting our time because, A, it's in the past, and, B, it's the backup goalie. Um, but, yeah, I don't I don't know. Maybe – and Halak is also more used to being a backup. I, I don't know. There's yeah. – ideally, your goalie wouldn't have a torn labrum. But he does, and he did. He's going to need to have surgery, he revealed, uh, after the season – um, not sure when that surgery is going to be, um, but uh, Tuka Rask is going to be out until 
at least January, maybe February, uh, rehabbing that. He said he does intend to play. He wants to come back and play. He says he only wants to play for the Bruins. The Bruins seem open to it. So, Lauren, what's what's your offseason game plan regarding the goaltending situation and regarding Tuka Rask? I mean, I think if you can get him back on a team-friendly deal, which I think is very much possible given how much he wants to stay here and then his injury, I think it's worth bringing him back. I mean, I know you have – then you have – the first half of the season to fill, like, do you platoon Vladar and Swayman? Do you go out and sign somebody else on like a cheaper deal? I've always been like the last couple of weeks, I've just been like jokingly throwing around Henrik Lundqvist's name. But the more I say it, I think I'm just like convincing myself it's a good idea and it's probably not. But, you know, I think that at the end of the day, if Rask wants to come back, if the money works and he understands maybe what kind of role he has, maybe he won't, come back in full capacity on January, February, maybe he'll do like a platoon role. I think there's something there to be worked out, but I think as long as the money works, the, the role works. And I don't see why you don't bring him back. If he can play that well on a t- torn labrum, we know he hasn't been fully healthy since what the bubble, he said he got hurt in the, in the bubble. Yeah. So if he can get this taken care of and be as close to hundred percent as possible, I think you absolutely have to at least try to work it out. Well, he's not going to be back playing until, what do you say, like January or February. So my thought is that this actually kind of works in the Bruins' favor because it allows them to do what they plan to do with the defense this year, but with less likelihood of it blowing up in their face. Because if you go with – if you sign a Max Legasse type, like super deft guy that you could put in in a pinch that will also play in the AHL, probably put him and Kyle Kaiser in the AHL. You go with Swayman and Vladar in the NHL and you have October, November, and December and maybe parts of January to see what you have with those guys as your two, like complete NHL workload. No, I'm getting chased by two Rask. I'm just keeping the seat warm, whatever. You see what you have. It still won't be a complete picture, but it'll be clearer than before. And then you have the midseason edition of Tuka Rask and either he comes and just steals the job right back or it's a bit of a competition. But I think something like Tuka Rask on a two-year deal where you get him through this upcoming season, you see what he has. He can retire if he wants, if he's really not feeling it. Otherwise, he gets another season where he can kind of try and win his job. And you're still not rushing Swayman or Vladar into uh, the starting job, but having no long-term backup plan does not seem shrewd. No disrespect to Tugarask's hip, but like this probably couldn't have worked out any better for them under, yeah. under the circumstances. Um, because he's, I mean, he has, and I don't even say this in a negative way. I just say this as a matter of fact, he is, taking away any sort of contract leverage that he has. Not yes, zero. Um, by, you know, one thing out of his control, the injury. The other thing is being like, I don't want to play anywhere else. Um, so he's not going to get a big contract. And first of all, the other, like, the, the big thing here is, I don't know if Tukarask is ever going to play another hockey game in his life. Like, that's obviously not sourced or inside information. That's not even speculation. That's just like, this is a tough injury to come back from. Like, yeah. you know, that it's a, this is a tough injury for baseball players to come back from, let alone goalies who 
make their money off of literally just going side to side lateral movements. Like that's a huge part of this, um, uh, this, this entire situation. So assuming he does come back. Yeah. I think this is a great spot for the Bruins to get him back at a much lower salary cap number while also being able to get a, a test run or a tryout for Swayman and, and Vladar and neither of them are bad enough, I think. And the team should be good enough. I think that a few off nights are not going to torpedo your season. And so maybe you're not going to be in first place in the division when Tuka Rask comes back, but it's, you know, you're probably going to be at least in striking distance. It's not going to ruin your season. So um, I, I think it, it, it could end up working out pretty well for them. I would be interested to see what they want to do in terms of adding a veteran goalie. Cause that may be something that they decide they need at some point, but um, it's, it's easier said than done, I guess, in that regard, especially if you want to find somebody who can go both ways and, and kind of help you in that regard. I know, you know, Legasse is, is an interesting name, but I would probably be looking to do something. You know, I don't know. Maybe there's a guy on they, a PTO or something too. Like I, it, it's tough. Well, you to probably need like a Mike McKenna type. Right. Yeah, exactly. And taxi squads are definitely going away. Right. right. So that, that will impact things too. Cause you can't just stash whoever Callum Booth, not that he had ever played in the NHL, but the, the, Brian Elliott, Mike McKenna type seems to make the most sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's another thing we can get into a little bit more as the summer goes on. But I, uh, that's just a, another interesting wrinkle that I think. Um, and then that'll give, you know, if Swayman looks like Calder slash Vezina trophy winner, then, you know, you're in a good spot too. And if Tuka feels comfortable coming back, that's the other thing too. What if Swayman's playing out of his mind? Um, and Tuca's like, you know, do I want to be a backup? You know, I, I got the sense from his end of the season remarks that he might actually be like, I think he knows what could happen if he resigns and he's, he's out yeah. for four or five months. I think he is acutely aware of the fact that that could mean he comes back and he more or less has to be the backup. Logan, you would know this better than I would. Can they manipulate the cap? now too with rask it'll definitely be a long-term ir thing but But like could they just let him so does it make more sense to long-term ir sign him this summer or does it make more sense to let him just float and then sign him in december there's not really much of a benefit unless you're going to sign him on like a cheap deal or something like that which i don't necessarily know why the ltir makes more sense it's kind of like what the lightning did with it, it is the the Bruins. If he's going to be back in January or February, the Bruins wouldn't be able to manipulate it like the Lightning would. Like if he's medically ready to play, he has to come off. Yeah. Um, all right. So I don't think if they to put it bluntly, if he signed for four million dollars, I don't think they would spend four million dollars over the cap if they know that he's coming back later in the year. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. Uh, one more before we get out of here. What's the Biggest non-Tuka storyline this offseason, Lauren, why don't you kick it off? Um, I think it's re-signing David Krejci and Taylor Hall. And Krejci was very, I guess, weird is a good way to say it about his future. I mean, I, no one's going to come out and say, like, yeah, well, I'm I'm not going to play right. Like, I'm, I'm done. Like, nobody's going to come out and say that. But he has made it clear he wants to finish his 
hockey career in Czech Republic. Um, he's obviously getting older, but I think being on a line with Taylor Hall and Craig Smith really rejuvenated him. And I know Cassidy has said that as well. So I think being able to sign those two um, would be huge for this team and to keep that first and second line intact. I think they're making a splash on defense. I, I think my theory for a while has been that the timing of them doing the whole youth movement thing on defense was to see if what they have now was actually sustainable long-term, if between Zaboral and Lozon in particular, because I think Vakanainen is far from a finished product. I think they wanted to see what they had so that when they were awash with cap space this offseason, they would know if they needed to spend on defense. And I'm not talking Mike Riley. I'm talking more, do they go for an Alex Goligoski type? Do they try and trade for Oliver Ekman Larson? Do they go Jamie Alexiak? Do they spend for Alec Martinez, who's been very good? Um, I, I think the Krejci and Hall storylines are obviously going to be huge. I, I don't think it's going to cost as much to sign Krejci or Hall as most people might think. Uh, I think the big move that they have to do that they obviously learned this year is going to have to be on defense. I'll, I'll just say it's a combination of both those things. I think Hall really is the key to the offseason. Um, if, if he's willing to take a cheaper deal to stay here, uh, then that changes the entire complexion of the offseason because I think you're going to get Rask and Krejci if they both want to be back at much, much less than they're making right now. So you're going to save money against the cap in that regard. Um, and if you can get Hall for relatively cheap and you don't have to blow all that cap space to re-sign him, then that completely opens up the offseason to do something kind of like you were talking about, Logan. So I think Taylor Hall really is kind of the key to a lot of different avenues um, for them this, this summer. So I'll add this real quick. If I were Krejci and my choice was coming back to the Bruins or going overseas – I would tell them I'm not coming back unless Hall's back or you sign somebody of equivalent yeah. caliber because I wouldn't blame him for being like, I can't keep freaking shouldering people the entire time. Plus, like Sweeney, I think it was Sweeney said he like he wants to go home at some point. Like that's it's it's home. It's literally home. Like, that, that's his leverage, too. Like I, yeah. he has more leverage than Rask does. I know he said he only wants to play for the Bruins, but like it's. And Krejci does have that chip where it's like, I'll, I'll walk away. You know, I can go back and play in the Czech Republic. There's no way he's making the same. Well, maybe he will. Yeah. I mean, if he's going to make three and a half, four million in the United States, then. No, I mean, in terms of like, so he's not, his AAV is going to be lower next year than it is this year. Right. Yeah. I your opinion. Guess. Which is interesting. Like if he had gone, if he was willing to go to market, which it sounds like he really isn't, at least the American NHL market, like he probably would have had plenty of suitors. He's still, if he actually got his market value, he's still probably a five or six million. Yeah, but I don't know if he'll get that with the Bruins if he decides he just wants to play here. I don't know. Be interesting. So I guess yeah, I'm more on the Lauren camp with Hall and Krejci. I think are huge, but especially Hall. So, all right, guys, let's get out of here. We got other stuff to do because we have other real jobs to attend to. So. Um, for uh, Lauren and Logan, I'm Mike. This has been the Ness and Bruins podcast. Thank you for joining us tonight, today, uh, and all season long. We appreciate it, uh, but we are not going anywhere. We'll be back soon enough um, with more off-season shenanigans. So until then, thanks again, and uh, we'll catch you next time. See you.